place to the epistle of First Peter. First Peter, chapter one. First Peter, chapter one. And this morning, Lord willing, we'll be looking at verses ten through twelve. family can be a source of great pain. Some might say, well, it's my friends, or it's this new guy or this new girl that I'm dating. A few may answer, well, it's my job or my career. That's really what gives me the greatest joy. And some may not be honest enough to say it, but really they, their greatest joy comes from their possessions or their hobbies or their interests or their sports team or their leisure activities. Or some might be really brutally honest and just say, well, I don't have a lot of joy in my life, to tell you the truth. But for every Christian, that true answer ought to be, the thing that brings me the most joy in my life is my relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And this great salvation that he has provided me. The Lord and his salvation ought to be the hub of our lives from which all the spokes of joy come out, right from that. All the spokes of joy in our families and in our friendships and our jobs and our possessions and our activities, it all comes back to that hub of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you take away my salvation, everything else would crumble in a meaningless ruin. Yet I fear that for far too many Christians, salvation is nice, but maybe not necessary. It adds fulfillment to their lives, but it's not the essential core of which if we lost it, everything else would disintegrate. It's something that we look at and we say, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, but then it doesn't manifest itself in every area of our life. We've kind of gotten really good, my friends, at compartmentalizing our lives. This is my work attention. This is my family attention. This is my leisure attention. This is my sports attention. Here's God. Here's his attention. Here's my kids' attention. Here's my grandkids' attention. We just kind of put everything into little snippets, little buckets of time. But might I just encourage you and remind you that God will not take second place in your life. Nor does he have to. And for true believers, when we do that, my friends, when we relegate him to just something that we add on top of our lives, the Lord has a way of kind of getting our attention, doesn't he? And reminding us that he will not be relegated to some minor aspect, something we just add on to our lives. Because he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the one true God who sustains the world 
does not need to take second place, nor will he ever do so. If we were to ask some of these folks, if they were honest, they would just shrug their shoulders and say, hey, what? Okay, I get it, salvation, salvation. What's so great about this salvation? Is this salvation really worth me living my life by, especially when I'm going to go through trials anyway? doesn't seem to help a lot that I have this salvation because I keep going through these trials. But trials have a way of getting us to focus on the bare essentials of life, don't they? They really kind of laser in our attention very quickly. And of course, the more severe the trial, the more focused we are on our salvation. And the more focused we get on our salvation, more we realize how great this salvation truly is for us. Peter's answer is to get everybody to look from their suffering to their salvation and see that it's more than worth it because your salvation is so great. The salvation that we enjoy is the salvation in which the prophets struggled to learn, to really understand fully, and to which the angels look upon in admiration. This salvation, that if you're a believer, is yours forever. That's what we want to talk about here this morning. So let's bow our heads in prayer. Ask the Lord to bless our time together in his word. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord all these dear saints that you've gathered here today. Thank you for the pitter-patter of little feet that leave in the middle of the service, Lord, with such joy and such enthusiasm and exuberance. We're going, Lord, to learn more about you, and we're thankful for each and every one. Thank you, Lord, that we can gather together. We have the freedom to do so. Freedom to worship, we pray, Lord, that you would grant our hearts this hour to focus in on as we hear the message today, Lord, as always, we pray that we wouldn't be thinking, boy, this message, somebody else really needs to hear this. But rather, as always, we would first apply your words to our heart. And we would ask, dear Lord, what would you have me do with this? Lord, may we not be just hearers of the word, but doers. For your honor and your glory, we ask in Christ's name. Just remind us that verse, I want to remind you that verses 3 through 12 are one long sentence uh, in our text today. So I just want to give you a little context really quickly because we're at the very end of that one long sentence here this week. Peter put suffering into proper perspective in verses 1 through 12. That's what he's trying to do because he's writing to people who are suffering. They have been exiled from their land, they've been dispersed, they've been persecuted. They've been kicked out of the synagogues. They can't shop in the marketplace. Their kids aren't going to the rabbinical schools. They're treated like outcasts. And he's already caused them to look Godward first in the first few, uh, verses 1 through 3 because he wanted to remind them that our salvation, our suffering, comes from the hand of a sovereign God who chose us in eternity past, who's drawn us to himself through his spirit, and who's cleansed us through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Through him, we've been born again to a living hope. And then in verses 3 through 5, the hope that we have in Christ of salvation and of our future inheritance in Christ, which is incorruptible, undefiled, cannot be tainted, cannot ever be taken away from you. It is secured by Christ himself. Then in verses 6 to 9, he shows how great this salvation results in an inexpressible joy, even when we're in the midst of our trials and tribulations. Because on one hand, as we go through these trials, it demonstrates our genuine faith. And that demonstration, that proof, not to God, but to your own hearts, of how genuine your faith is. second longer than it takes for you to fall to your knees and recognize that he is God and he is Lord of your life and bring you back into the fold again. Now today in verses 10 through 12 he's going to go back to the prophets who spoke about this great salvation to to show how unsearchable it is that neither the prophets nor the angels truly really grasped and how privileged we are in this generation to have received it in this age, in this dispensation. And he means to encourage believers in the midst of trials. And just as Jesus Christ first suffered and then was glorified, so Christians may now suffer, but the glory lies ahead. And if we will focus on this text here, beginning in verse 10. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow going to spend a little bit of time on these two verses and then we'll move quickly through verse 12. But here we go. Point number one in your notes. The prophets searched and inquired about this great salvation. Peter reminds them that the believers of his day of the diligent search and inquiry the prophets made regarding this salvation. Now these prophets want to remind you we're divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit to write prophecies concerning the coming of Christ and the salvation that he would bring in their mind though they were looking for whom they were looking for the Messiah he would be the anointed one that's what the word Christ means anointed Christos they were looking for the Messiah the anointed one 
And I'm certain that they pondered the depth of meaning in regard to the passages that they were inspired to write. They were intrigued by it. And even though they didn't fully comprehend their own writings, they longed to grasp the eternal truths that they knew that God was sharing with them. Now notice four words here in verses 10 through 12. You can underline them in your Bible if you'd like. The first word is inquired in verse 10. Inquired. Searched diligently, or you may have the word carefully in your Bible. Word seeking in verse 11, and the words and the word it was revealed in verse 12. See a pattern here. Their diligent inquiry gave the prophets illumination, if you will, of the coming Messiah. And the prophets dug into the word of God like someone who's digging for gold, searching out this great salvation. Now, the prophets really had two primary jobs. They were, they proclaimed the word of God, thus saith the Lord. They were forth tellers, forth telling you. And then they prophesied about coming events. That made them foretellers. So they're foretellers, prophesying future events, and forth tellers speaking the truth of God today. Today, we have forth tellers. That's what pastors, right? Teachers do. For centuries, the Old Testament prophets wrote about and looked for and waited for the Messiah. And then through the divine inspiration of the prophets, they were able to write down the words using their own experience, in their own words, exactly what God would have them write down. But they didn't understand much of it themselves. Look at verse 11 here, just quickly. It says, the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted. Now, you're in 1 Peter 1, but this is telling you that the Holy Spirit, the spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit was moving them along in this process, and they were writing down what God would have them write down, but it's not like they were in dictation or some sort of trance and just writing things down. They... God, through the Holy Spirit, same way the New Testament was written down, incidentally, same way. God carried them along, if you will, like the wind in a sailboat is the power that guides and directs them. And when they're done, they've written down exactly what God would have them write down. Every word, every jot and tittle, the Bible says, every, every those are the smallest punctuation marks, every single one is inspired by the word of God. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21 here. Peter will talk about this a little bit later in the next epistle. Beginning in verse 20, he says, But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture, my friends, that's all Scripture, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of what? one's own interpretation. So in other words, I, it wasn't like Peter said, you know, I think I'll, this is what I remember. I think I'll jot it down. And John said, you know, I got a different memory, but I'll write this down too. Yeah, yeah, whatever. No, that's not how it works. God was superintending this process. Verse 21, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. 
it's pretty clear, isn't it? But man moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That's how we have our Holy Scriptures. No one prophet had all the truth revealed to him either. It's not like, well, Isaiah's got all the truth and the rest of you only get snippets. No, that's not how it worked either. One prophet would receive one bit of truth. Another prophet would receive another bit of truth. Truth. So, for example, let me just give you an example. They predicted the coming of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. There are over 300 separate prophecies in the Old Testament concerning the coming of Jesus Christ. If you're ever witnessing to somebody... This is just one example. I'm only going to rattle off maybe 15 or 18, just quick, quick one. I'm not going to, we don't have time for me to walk you through all 300. I'm just going to rattle off a few for you here. But there are 300 separate prophecies, and these 300 separate, separate prophecies were prophesied by about 40 different prophets in diverse places around the world over a 1,500-year period. And every single prophecy came true. There's not one contradiction. And here are just a few of the predictions made about Jesus. You can jot these down quickly, or you may already know them off the top of your head. Here's one. Isaiah 7.10, that he would be born of a virgin. Micah 5.2, that he would be born in Bethlehem. Genesis 49.10, that he would come from the tribe of Judah. Isaiah 9.1, that his ministry would begin in Galilee. Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6, that he would work tremendous miracles. Psalm 78, a psalm of Asaph, that he would teach in parables. Zechariah 9, 9, that he would enter Jerusalem on a donkey. Psalm 41, verse 9, psalm of David, that he would be betrayed by a friend. Zechariah 11, 12, he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. Psalm 35, 11, that he would be accused by false witnesses. Isaiah 53, 5, that he would be wounded and bruised. Psalm 22, 16, another psalm of David, that his hands and feet would be pierced. Isaiah 53, 12, that he'd be crucified with thieves. Psalm 22, 18, another psalm of David, that his garments would be torn apart and they would cast lots for them. Psalm 34, 20, that uh, psalm of David, his bones would not be broken. Zechariah 12, 10, his side would be pierced. Isaiah 53, 9, he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. Psalm 16, 70, a psalm of David, he would rise from the dead. Every single one of those came true. And most of those were written hundreds of years before the incarnation. Hundreds of years. Now, they didn't always understand fully what they predicted. I mean, how would Isaiah understand how a virgin would conceive and son. Imagine, if you will, 40 different men trying to put together a 300-piece jigsaw puzzle, but no one has all the pieces and no one has a picture in front of them of the box. And then add to that that the men didn't work together. In fact, they were hundreds of years apart from each other. They couldn't understand the time and under, and under what circumstances these would be fulfilled. And they couldn't figure out who the Messiah would be or when he would come or how he would present himself. And they couldn't understand what, 
by one, where one prophet would see him as a suffering Messiah and another would see him full of glory. In Psalm 2, they saw him in his glory. In Isaiah 53, they saw him suffering. They saw tragedy on Mount Calvary. Calvary. They saw triumph on the Mount of Olives. They knew he was going to be a prophet greater than Moses, a priest greater than Aaron, a king greater than David, and yet he would be despised, rejected, smitten, and put to death. That's what it's like being an Old Testament prophet, trying to understand this salvation that the Messiah would bring. David had a few pieces of the puzzle. Isaiah had a few pieces. Daniel had a few. Zechariah had a few. But no one had all of them. But try as they might, they couldn't figure it out. And as the prophets looked into the future, they knew God was up to something. They just couldn't put it all together. But they knew it involved both suffering and glory for the Messiah. And all the prophets, Jesus said, were testifying of him. Now, I want to stop for a second and just reflect on that truth for just a minute. Because I think that provides a great challenge for us today, doesn't it? You see, like the prophets of old, there are certain doctrines and aspects of our salvation that we sometimes struggle with our heads around, really fully understand it all. And much of it must simply be received by faith or lived through the assurance that we have in Christ. However, we should also be students of the word, and we should make it our practice to search the scriptures daily, seeking to gain a better understanding of our faith and of this great salvation with which we have received. And I promise you, you will never reach the depths of God's unsearchable riches. You just keep diving, and no matter how deep you go, there's more. Secondly, the prophets of old never lived to see Christ in their day. They never saw the Messiah. They believed by faith in the work yet to come, and they sensed that they needed to share what God had laid on their hearts. They, they knew that they had to give this information out. Some of it they were commanded to give out. That's what they were doing as prophets. But my friends, we live on this side of the cross. We live after the glorious resurrection. We have the completed revelation of God to mankind through his holy word. And we can't understand the every detail of the end times, but we know that Christ will be triumphant. We have the recorded truths of the gospel. We have received the command to preach it to every living creature and to make disciples for Jesus as we go. The world needs this living hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And my friends, if they could do it, and almost every single one of them was martyred for sharing this truth, should we share this truth too. I pray God will deal with our hearts both individually and corporately as a church in regards to this urgency of sharing the gospel because my friends the day is fast approaching. Now there's one more aspect of our great salvation in these two verses that I just mentioned and I just want to touch on it before we move to verse 12 and that's the word do you see that in the back? See 
text in 1 Peter 1. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace. You see that? Now, grace is an important word in Peter's epistle because he uses it ten times. Ten times in this epistle. And many Christians confuse grace today for this easygoing version of Christianity that urges us to not be too tough on ourselves and not to be too judging of others. Unfortunately, we end up being tolerant of all sorts of things the Bible strongly confronts. Grace is God's undeserved, unmerited favor. And you cannot appreciate God's grace until you understand how completely unworthy we are to receive anything but God's judgment. He is holy and perfect, and that's the righteous standard. Not a single one of us could stand before him in our own righteousness. Matter of fact, that's repulsive to God. It's as filthy rags that we think we can stand before the Almighty God and declare our own righteousness. Don't miss the point here, my friends. Our salvation. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. 
grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. For the grace of God has appeared, my friends. Jesus is the grace that brings salvation. That concept of grace surpassed even the thoughts of the Old Testament prophets. They could not grasp that. They made an exhaustive inquiry to find out what that was all about. They searched and they searched their own writings. And then they searched and searched the writings of others, the prophets. They knew that there was a grace that would come someday that would surpass whatever their minds could possibly comprehend. They knew it would come through the Messiah. But what they were searching and inquiring about is your great salvation that you now enjoy, that you now live in. What they were searching and spent their whole lives inquiring for and digging like they were digging for gold, you know you're experiencing it. They could only search for it. They could only try to grasp what it meant it is the salvation that comes by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and his atoning work on the cross. Again, here's an application for us today. We now live in the day and the age of grace. We are in the dispensation of the church age, the time between his glorious ascension uh, to the Father and his second coming. That's the age that we're in now. And we have no way of knowing when he will return, but rest assured, my friends, Jesus is coming again. And he could return this very day. He could return this very moment. The truth is we just don't know. But the matter of most importance is that we should be ready for him to come today. Church, we may we be faithful to share the gospel, my friends. Every more, ever more ever faster. If Jesus were to return today, I fear that many would be left behind, eternally separated from the grace and mercy of God. Let that not be because we were afraid we'd hurt their feelings or they'd be upset with us or they wouldn't like us anymore. I'd rather that they don't like me now and they spend eternity in heaven Trust me, they'll get over it. Then they really like me now, and they spend eternity in a godless place. Now, you don't have the power to convert or save a single one of them. That's not your role here. That's God's role. Your role is to be faithful. To be a faithful witness to whomever God puts in your path. Share the gospel. Point number one, the prophet searched and inquired about this great salvation. Two quick points now are left regarding our great salvation, and we find them both in verse 12. Let's look here now at the first one. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things, <clears throat> which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. These things into which angels long. Point number two, the apostles proclaimed this great salvation. 
Not only did the prophets search and inquire, but the apostles proclaimed it. What the prophets predicted came true in Jesus Christ. And the apostles then took that truth about Jesus and proclaimed it to everybody who would listen, and even those who wouldn't. And the church spread across the Roman Empire and 2,000 years later to the ends of the earth. How did it happen? Well, the only explanation given is here in our text in verse 12. They proclaimed the message the prophets first announced, and they proclaimed it how? In the power of the Holy Spirit. You see that? Peter mentions the Holy Spirit twice in these three verses. He says it's the Spirit of Christ who inspired the Old Testament prophets and gave them the prophecies that they foretold. And likewise, the apostles proclaimed the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit as well. And their proclamation focused on the gospel, the good news, the offer of salvation through Jesus Christ. And they believed the word of God and they proclaimed the gospel of God, and they did it in the power of God. And my friends, that playbook has not changed. We believe in the word of God, we proclaim the gospel of God, and we rely on the power of God. Everything else that we do beyond that in the church, everything else, Proclaim the whole counsel of God, every word of God's great salvation of grace through Jesus Christ, and then trust in the Holy Spirit to accomplish his will. And anything beyond that, because in churches we get, we really like to kind of get ahead of ourselves here. Anything beyond belief in the word of God, proclaiming the gospel of God and relying on the power of God, is neither beneficial nor necessary. Point number one, the prophets searched and inquired about this great salvation. Point number two, the apostles proclaimed this great salvation. One more. Point three, the angels admire this great salvation. You see that at the very end of verse 12. Notice the text, which the angels longed to look. Now, we did a little word study here. There's two different Greek words here. and One means to stand on the tippy toe like you're in the back of a crowd trying to trying to see over the top of the crowd, like straining to see it. And the other word is used by Peter and John. It means to stoop down. It's used by Peter and John when it says they stepped inside the empty tomb to look inside when they were looking for Christ. So you got one word means stand on your tippy toe, kind of look. And the other one stoop way down, try and get in there real close. That's the word here that's used of how the angels long to look. They're so eager to understand God's grace, they stand on tippy-toe and bend down from the heavenlies to marvel at this unfolding salvation, which is you as a believer, trust in Christ. Why would the angels marvel at our salvation? Here, Pastor Richard helps us here. This. There are no saved angels because salvation is not for them but for us. Jesus died to redeem fallen men and women, not the angels. There are good angels, there are bad angels, there are obedient and disobedient angels, but there are no saved angels. Only, only humans can be saved. Only humans can be redeemed. 
creatures in the universe can experience the wonders of God's saving grace. And that fascinates the angels and causes them to study and ponder the mysteries of the salvation that they don't share. They know nothing about grace and mercy and forgiveness. They've never experienced new life, new birth, regeneration, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, or the wonder of deliverance from sin. And that which we have experienced in Jesus Christ, the angels never knew and will never know. My friends, you are far more privileged than they are. This great salvation in which you enjoy, in which you walk in. And that's Peter's message. That God loves you so much. Even the angels admire the salvation that you enjoy. What the prophets searched and inquired but couldn't understand what the apostles proclaimed through the power of the Holy Spirit, what the angels admired but never experienced, we understand and we experience every single day. We are privileged, my friends, beyond our dreams in this great salvation. And so when you go through a trial, which many of you are going through even now as we speak, don't take your eyes off. It is incomprehensible what you have. And you only, you don't even have it in, in full yet. There's still, you don't even understand the full fullness of what your salvation brings. That comes in the next stage of glorification. But what you have right now is incorruptible, undefiled. It can never, ever, ever be taken away. Wow. I began this message by asking you, consistently gives you the most joy in your life. And if your, honest, if your honest answer was anything other than Jesus Christ and the salvation he has given to me by faith, my friends, you need to do some serious soul searching. Because that is the hub of everything in your life as a believer. And you might be a church member and even involved in ministry but if you've never responded personally to this great salvation that God provided through Jesus Christ, you are lost. You need Christ. I fear that as in Jesus' day, so, to, so today, it's often that most outwardly religious are those who have the most difficulty responding to the salvation Christ requires because it, admit, it, it requires us to admit that we are helplessly, hopelessly lost without him. And so our pride gets in the way, and we refuse to surrender at all. Peter's arguing that our salvation is so great that whatever we must endure for Christ's sake now is nothing compared to is nothing compared to the salvation which you now have forever. We may suffer now, but we've already tasted a little of this great salvation that the prophets foretold and the apostles proclaimed and the angels longed to look. But we, even we, can't even fathom all the riches God has in store for those who love him. Even we can't comprehend that now. We're at this side of the cross. 
close with this because I want to give you just a little quick Bible study real quick. In those passages that we just read, one of the things you can tell where God has kind of put a little special emphasis is when he repeats the word again and again and again and again. You know what that word is there? Verses 10 through 12? It's the word you. Look how many times that word you is mentioned in just those message, he writes of the grace that would come to you. They were not serving themselves, but you in the things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit from heaven. The point is very simple. Even though the message of God's salvation is the greatest message in human history, it does you no good unless you lay hold of it by faith. And if you don't not know, if you don't know today, <laughs> the great joy of salvation. If you're not locked in and leaning on and clinging to this great salvation as you weather the storms, maybe it's because you've never totally surrendered it all. came to this earth and that he died on that cross for my sin and that he was dead and buried and rose again on the third day and he's seated at the right hand of the Father to come again someday
Father, thank you, dear Lord, for the truth of your message. Lord, we spent the last several weeks looking at this one long sentence that talks about the joy of our great salvation. And Father, I pray that if there's one in our midst or many in our midst who do not know you, that today was the day where, Lord, they just laid it all in front of the cross. And they were just totally into their hearts and you saw exactly and you know exactly what they were thinking exactly what they were feeling Lord they gave it all they surrendered it all and Father I pray for those who have made that decision before but perhaps they've drifted away perhaps they've allowed other things in their life to crowd out the truth and the joy of this great salvation Lord may today be the first day new journey, where you're back at the center of everything in their life, and that there's no aspect, no spoke that comes from the, the hub of the, their life, which is you, that is not filtered through you, but to challenge our hearts, to live for you, to be a witness for you, both in the words that we say and the way that we live our lives, all glory to you.